They say the gods created everything, and they're right. Just sometimes I wish that they hadn't. Far before our story takes place, the world was full of magic. The gods watched over the world and granted boons of great power to clerics and paladins that did their bidding. Innate magical abilities were present in the vast majority of those who lived, and none wanted for anything. As time went on and the gods got older, though not necessarily wiser, they stopped paying as close attention to their vast creation. They busied themselves with their own wants and desires, enjoying the fruits of their labors. Though they never stopped caring for their creation, their desire to meddle openly in the world they had created waned. Those who were granted gifts of magic directly from the gods, their numbers diminished greatly, and the number of those who were simply born with magical abilities also plummeted. Where once the majority of beings born could perform some form of magic, now, in a given generation, that number can be counted on a single hand. The age of magic had ended, and the technological era had begun. Great thinkers created contraptions that performed tasks that were once deemed to be impossible except via magic. In the wealthy city of Slaughter Key to the south, grand windmills power generators that create electric lights in the homes of the wealthy. Their creator, the governor's grand inventor, Artemis Stilton, unsatisfied to end her exploits there, refuses to stop. With the financial backing of a fellow visionary, they are set to change the world in a matter of years. It is during this technological boom that our story begins. Three travelers, a ranger, a monk, and a cleric set off from the northern capital city of Wellspring on what was supposed to be a simple job. Shepherd a wagon full of goods from the capital to the tiny mining town of Rosverin. Unbeknownst to them, this simple job would set off the entirety of their adventures together. A double kidnapping finds their employer and his promise of payment gone. His bodyguard, an older man, Starn Hathier, has no memory of the inciting incident, and the apparent kidnapper is killed before any information can be gleaned. Before long, they uncover the location of their employer, locked away in an ancient and crumbling keep deep in the forest. He's being traded for his knowledge about an ancient mine he and his brothers have stumbled upon. After retrieving him from his captors, it is time to take out those who've caused them so much trouble, a necromancer and his followers. A map deep within the enemy encampment leads the group south, through the guild-run city of Hawksbow, an ancient road leads to the heart of the mountains. A 30-mile-long tunnel connects the northern province of Wellspring to Slaughter Key, its sister to the south, at the fortified city of Anvilgate. It is in Anvilgate that the party meets a powerful woman who simply goes by Nan. Nan runs a far-reaching conglomerate of shops called Sign North, and she has a problem. A worker's strike in the port city of Hestia has locked a time-sensitive shipment in a warehouse. With no end to the strike in sight, and goods rotting on waiting ships, Nan is running out of time. Knowing the three wish to gain an audience with a powerful, wealthy, and knowledgeable drow named Doak, she leveraged this to her benefit, free her cargo from the warehouse that held it, either by liberating it or ending the strike and she would give them a personal recommendation that would get them inside the door. No questions asked. A week-long trip brought them to the sea. 
The strike was devastating. Families that relied on the warehouse for shipping or work found themselves without income. Those who had family gardens, like that of the cleric's daughter, were able to subsist and even help their neighbors, but supplies were running as thin as their spirits. Uncovering the owners of the warehouse was a simple enough task, and through some convincing, the three were able to end the strike, free the goods they had been sent to recover, and raise the well-being of the disparaged workers. Getting back to Nan at Anvilgate should have been an easy enough task. Head back the way they had come. Their plans were interrupted by a woman attempting to flee, and her tale of folklore come to life. Apparently, in the forest city of Bears Grove, an ancient menace was more than just bothering the citizens of the quiet town. Beings known as the Ravens or Blackbirds were menacing the locals, kidnapping people off of the streets and robbing graves. The whole mess echoed of misdeeds done a century before by the very same creatures under the command of a powerful necromancer. The ranger, having her own similar experience, was unwilling to let the rumors go idly. Meeting an imprisoned woman and an overly confident priest, the three discovered the woman's imprisonment to be a simple case of the wrong place at the wrong time, and an overly eager collection of guards hoping to solve a problem in the fastest way possible. Being witness to her rescue via a figure clad fully in black and appearing out of thin air in an explosion of black smoke and rock, the three found themselves entangled in these creatures' plot to free the woman and capture the actual culprits. These beings, the actual blackbirds of legend, creatures known as Voidwalkers, of which I find myself part of their number, care for only one thing, finding and destroying necromancers. After aiding in the escape of the captive, the party, along with my compatriot and myself, discovered the name of the person in charge, Torakova. Elusive, they had escaped our grasp along with their lackey, a troublesome drow, Yerith. Having left few clues to follow, we left the party to their own devices, promising to let them know should something arise. With the job for Nan completed, and new clues to follow, the party made their way south to Slaughter Key. The capital of the region and its namesake, the city held more than a few opportunities for those with a brave heart and a willingness for adventure. Doak, a wealthy silver mine owner and proprietor for the city, has expensive and eclectic tastes. More than happy to show his wealth through a cultivation of ancient artifacts, he is willing to pay handsomely for items no one else could possibly own. It is here that three become four. Having previously lost a party to the ancient temple he so desperately desires to pillage, Doak adds a rogue to the companions. Having come highly recommended by someone who long ago realized their life was worth more than whatever was being offered as payment, the new companion set out. An ancient tomb to a long-forgotten goddess almost became their grave. As they fought their way through puzzle rooms towards a grand central chamber, they found themselves facing off against the mortal embodiment of a god. Battered, near death, and many blinded or deafened, the four found themselves victorious. Idle in hand, they made their way back towards the city and their promised riches.
I was found a small elven babe in the cold arms of my dead mother. The traveling performers, called Madge's Marvels, who found me, took me in and raised me as one of their own. Nothing comes for free, so I was trained to juggle to be able to earn my keep. I look back on my childhood fondly, though it is bittersweet. When I was 15, I snuck off to play in the woods with Ericus, a runaway boy who had recently joined up. We were skipping rocks on a pond when we heard screams. I tried to run towards them, but he forced me to stay until the air was quiet. Our caravan was burnt to the ground. My new family was dead. With nowhere else to go, Ericus took me to his father, Len Stanhope, a metalsmith in Idic Bay. I could stay if I worked, and so I did, even when Ericus ran away again. I spent 15 years learning to smith, and Lynn took me in as his own child. When he died, he left everything to me. Once again, I was left without a family, but I had a new name. Anzeo Stanhope. I took in a dwarf girl named Ugalid as an apprentice and taught her everything Lynn had taught me. She became one of the best smiths I've ever known, as well as a good friend. I decided to leave for the Intus Rainforest. I had met a wood elf named Mylan and foolishly thought I was in love. After nearly 10 years living amongst his people, I realized I was drawn to our similar heritage, something I had missed out on early in life. Besides that, we had very little in common. I returned to Ugalid and worked alongside her for the next 50 years. Perhaps it was the repetition of doing the same thing every day for half a century. Or maybe it was when Lady Carolyn requested the 357th gem-eyed fox, but I grew bored and annoyed with my life. After hugging Ugalid several times, I left for Wellspring. Word around town was that there was a job that very few folks wanted to do, because it may be dangerous. After years of repetitive tasks, I was up for anything and it sounded like a good start to my new life. I met up with my new traveling companions, and after the job went south, I found myself with a new ally, a pseudo-dragon named Akina, and a whirlwind of a new adventure. Well, I guess it's only polite to introduce myself. I am called Balasar by those who know me, Lizard folk or dragonborn by the rest. I am lizard folk, but most can't tell the difference. It wasn't until adolescence that my demeanor and appearance clued others in on me being something different. You see, I was raised by dragonborn and lived amongst them during my childhood. Soon I was cast out from the Grand Temple in Firestone, where I was studying, and those who had helped hide my identity were imprisoned. You see, lizard folk are treated as primitives by the larger part of Dragonborn society. They are not allowed in their cities, let alone allowed to be part of their religious orders. In one fell blow, my dreams of ever becoming a paladin were destroyed. With nothing left, I fled to find my parents and tell them what had happened, warning they could be next. They weren't surprised like I thought they'd be. They just calmly packed up their things and prepared to leave. When we parted ways, they gave me a large envelope in a small box. The envelope was filled with letters and a map telling me where they found me 
So I did the only thing I knew to do. I left in search of where I came from. It took me a week to get to the edge of Higgins Swamp, to the place my parents had found me. All that was left were some burned out ruins of what I could only assume had once been a town. I spent what felt like weeks searching the nearby area for clues, but nothing ever came up. I had no choice left but to head deeper into the swamp. I can't tell you exactly how long I searched those lands. Days became weeks, months, and then years. I developed survival skills. Tracking prey and reading animal behavior almost seemed like a second nature. I learned to make medicines from local plants to treat my injuries and illnesses. I didn't rely on anyone. I didn't need to. That solitude took some things from me. My memories became just a haze. I couldn't recall my own parents' names, and my training definitely faltered. If it wasn't for my continued faith in Bahamut, I may have never made it back to civilization. Call it divine inspiration, or maybe just plain luck, but I made my way through the swamps and wilderness only to chance upon a religious conservatory high in the mountains. It almost felt like home, being around the faithful again, and I was able to settle in a bit and I began to refocus on my faith and training. As the thrill of being back in the temple wore down, I started to get uncomfortable. This wasn't where I belonged. I didn't know these people and I started to become paranoid that someone here would recognize me and send word to Firestone. Not knowing exactly how far from Firestone I had fled, I just could not risk staying any longer. I packed a bag and set off once again. This time I headed northwest through the mountains and stuck to rough roadways and trails when I could, but I would still avoid any sizable town as the paranoia still hadn't faded. Once I was near the coast, I found a small fishing village and decided to stock up on supplies. There I met an elderly man named Eugene. I was surprised to find a human who knew what I was, and he offered to take me out to the isles that the lizard folk had settled. He called them the Myrmidon Isles. Not two days later, I found myself amongst my own people. I was welcomed quickly, without much fuss, and was given a place to sleep and chores to fulfill around the village. I had so many questions, but no one seemed keen on providing answers. I lived amongst my people for several years, learning everything I could about our culture and habits. Eventually I heard a tale that caught my attention. Elders spoke of an ancient lizard folk city, an old hold where one of the elders had been raised. Many had fled from this ancestral home out of fear from the constant threat of skirmishes with the dragonborn, but it was rumored to still exist if you were wise enough to find it. It was then I knew I needed to leave the islands and find this forgotten city, so I packed up my things and set out to search for information that would possibly lead me home. It was on board a ship back to the mainland I first met Creed, and my adventure truly began. smiled upon my arrival into the world. It turns out, the world at large had missed that memo. My name is Creed. I was born to parents I would never meet, in the middle of the worst hurricane our island had seen in over a century. My life amidst so much death was seen as an ill omen, and the people who were supposed to welcome me into the world tried to take me out of it. 
As the angry villagers attempted to wrestle me from my mother's arms, Thor himself intervened, whisking me away on the crest of a wave, far away from my home, but towards safety. At least that is what I was told. Growing up, I spent as much of my time on the sea as I could. The call to its bottomless depths was great, and from an early age, it was obvious that the god of the sea had granted me his blessing in more ways than one. Magic came easily to me, healing magic especially, so finding a ship that was in need of my services was never a difficult task. For years I crewed aboard a ship called the Guardian. She was a fast ship, and could make runs up and down the coast far faster than any other vessel her size. After years of being adrift, I was finally home. I met a fellow tiefling, a woman named Keela. At the time, she was first mate, and after a short courtship, we had a daughter, Tove. We raised our daughter aboard the ship, and Keela's position as first mate grew to that of captain. Life was never easy, but we were happy. Though Keela and I never married, and the passion in our relationship dwindled, we never stopped raising our daughter together. When Tove was 17, she fell for a seaman, a man named Devros, and she herself became pregnant. Though her childhood had been happy, a life on the sea was not what she wished for her own child. So she and Devros married, and started a home together in the port city of Hestia. Things were relatively uneventful until a Goliath by the name of Thrag was brought aboard. He was easy to anger, and had a temper a mile wide. He had no respect for the gods, and even less for Thor. One night, in a fit of drunken rage, he attacked a woman after leaving a tavern. Bleeding and on death's door, I saved her with a boon from Thor. Keela, once alerted to his actions, could no longer stand to have the man aboard her crew. Dismissed, we assumed wrongly we had heard the last of him. Like the coward he was, he lashed out at my family for a wrong he associated with me. He crippled my young granddaughter a wound I would spend years attempting to rectify. A wound that I wound up striking a deal with a forgotten god in order to fix. My magic has changed now. My faith is shaken. Maybe if I had stayed on the boat, not followed Balasar, run that job for that dwarven mine owner, things would be different. Perhaps my magic would not have been corrupted. My allegiance stayed true. Instead, I'm visited in the night by visions of a dark place and beings that know far too much watch my every step. I am plagued by one pervasive question. Was it worth it? My name is Davaris Luna, and I was born into abject poverty. My parents worked as servants for the old Duke of Potts Bay, in a large manor on the western continent. Due to the contracts, they were not allowed to have more than one child. This was not a problem until my sister Elith and brother Finmar were born. At a young age, I was forced out of my home and into the streets. Far before I was ready, I was put in charge of two small children, and with few other options, I fell in with a less than reputable crowd and their promise of easy riches. From them, I learned how to steal, how to cheat, and most importantly, 
how to charm those I met into trusting me. After some time, I was trusted enough to be introduced to their leader, an elf by the name of Glindle. He took me under his wing and taught me thieves' count, so I would never be without help when the going got especially tough. When I was but 57, war broke out on the continent. A man by the name of Frederick de Luca laid siege to the city and handily took it over. He killed the old duke and his wife and took on that title himself. All of those who had worked for the old duke were taken as slaves, including my parents. In the frenzy of the ensuing battles, I lost contact with my siblings. Glendal used this in his favor as he found me to be particularly useful. He convinced me easily to join him in his escape from the city. Had I known I would not see the shores of my home again, I would have changed my mind. For years after making our way across the ocean, we wound our way slowly down the coast of the eastern continent, going from town to town running scams and cons until we had outstayed our welcome. This went on for far longer than I am comfortable admitting. After making our way to the wealthy city of Slaughterkeep, we heard of a drow that went by the name of Doak, a wealthy silver mine owner known to hire and pay handsomely those who had run dangerous jobs for him. He was elusive though, and getting in touch with the right kinds of people would mean we would have to change the way we did things. It wasn't long though before Glindle fell ill. I stayed with him until the end, and for the first time, in a long time, I was utterly and completely alone. Using the skills I had learned from a life in the shadows, I came into contact with an elven woman by the name of Josana. She played spy for a brothel owner, but would periodically run jobs for Doke. She was the inn I had been searching for. I ran with her for a bit, ingratiated myself with her, and eventually won her trust enough for a recommendation. Had I fully understood the gravity and danger of the jobs Duke wanted done, I might have changed my mind. But it was far too late to get cold feet. Thank you for listening to Five Friends in Fiction. The narrator was Emily Leverage. Anzeo Stanhope is Kate Flint. Balasar Kepisk is Tyler Deal. Abaddon Creed is Matthew Austin. And Avaris Lona is Abigail Leverage. Music was provided by Ben Sounds and Hooksounds.com. The two narration themes were Absolute Magnitude by Nazar Rybeck and Attack the Colonies by Miguel Johnson. Onzeo's theme was November by Ben Sounds. Balasar's theme was Instinct by Ben Sounds. Creed's first theme was Ophelia's Dream by Ben Sound, and his second theme was Anchors Away by J.D. Pinto. Devaris's theme was Tomorrow by Ben Sound. The credits theme was a continuation of Absolute Magnitude by Nazar Rybeck. The adventure continues next week. So until then... May your friends always have your back.